V1. Pull up. Pull up. Pull up. Terrain. Terrain. Pull up. Terrain. Welcome to the Flight Safety Detectives. Hosts John Golia and Greg Fife, two of the world's most respected aviation safety experts, talk all things related to aviation and aerospace. This podcast and the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel are brought to you by the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, PAMA, and Avemco Insurance, a world-class provider of aviation insurance and your one-stop for all general aviation insurance needs. Get a customized quote at avemco.com or give them a call at 888-879-0389. Tell them you're a listener of the show and receive a 5% discount. Now it's time to buckle up because it's wheels up for the latest episode of Flight Safety Detectives. Welcome, gentlemen. It's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. I know that uh, you guys uh, lit me up a little bit on the last show thinking that I'm on vacation. Believe me, I wish I was on vacation. And I know that the NTSB wishes I was on permanent vacation because I'm sure they're getting tired of listening to me uh, beat them up. But it is what it is. And you can see I'm uh, doing today's show from a rental car because uh, I'm traveling. I'm on the road in Atlanta doing some work. So um, I wanted to get back to the Cessna 310R that we had talked about uh, several shows ago uh, that had crashed in Palo Alto because we, uh, we have to talk about the issues that were not developed and were not discussed by the NTSB in their report. And um, as you all recall, and hopefully our audience recalls, this was a Cessna 310 that uh, had several Tesla employees on it. And uh, they were heading on a short flight, nothing real exciting, but uh, they were taking off, the pilot was taking off out of his home airport in Palo Alto. So we would have been familiar uh, with the departure and, and of course any obstacles that were along the flight path coming off of runway 31. Uh, shortly after takeoff, well, even before he took off, the weather, the, the fog had settled in on top of that airport. It was uh, a one sixteenth of a mile visibility. So basically <laughs> zero, zero. Um, he had uh, taxied out. The air traffic controller who was in the tower at the time, um, when the pilot said, hey, I'm waiting for a takeoff uh, clearance from you, he goes, I can't give you a takeoff clearance because I can't see the runway. Um, and I'm going to talk about that. But then shortly after takeoff, less than a mile from the airport, the pilot makes a 45-degree uh, heading change to the left. He's at a very low altitude and uh, collides with a high-tension power line metal stanchion. Of course, that shreds the aircraft and uh, bits and pieces rain down in the neighborhood. Questions, you know, the NTSB did their investigation. I think it was very superficial. And Todd, I know that uh, you've got the report pulled up. Just read us the probable cause because I really have issues with this probable cause. In the NTSB final report, which any of you can look at at the NTSB website, the probable cause and findings sections reads as follows. The National Transportation Safety Board determines the probable causes of this accident to be the pilot's failure to follow the standard instrument departure as instructed, and his failure to attain a sufficient altitude to maintain clearance from power lines during takeoff and instrument meteorological conditions. Those two things 
One, there is no standard instrument departure at Palo Alto. There is a obstacle clearance departure procedure. And basically it is what the, uh, the pilot had received from the controller. And that was to climb straight out and then make a right turn. He would then go to the VOR and then turn on course. The question that has not been answered is why the pilot right after takeoff turned left because there is no standard instrument departure. Terminology is a big thing here. It's an obstacle departure clearance. It is not a standard instrument departure. And if you look up the definition, you'll see why I'm critical of it. The fact is, is that he failed to follow, of course, the, the clearance procedure that the air traffic controller had given him, which was to climb straight ahead, runway heading, and then make a right turn. The question was never answered why that left turn occurred. And of course, there is no answer to why the pilot never got above 50 to 100 feet right after takeoff. We know that both engines were running according to the NTSB because the uh, local police department had offered, uh, they've got uh, a, um, a sound system throughout the city that records uh, gun blasts. And they were able to pick up the engine noises and through sound spectrum analysis, were able to determine that both engines on this airplane were running at full power. The question is, of course, now, why was he so low? Why, never, why didn't he ever attain more than about 50 to 100 feet? He actually collided with the high tension wire stanchion, which is a very large structure at about 80 feet above the ground. And of course that shred the airplane. So there's a lot of questions just in that little piece of what was going on. The NTSB does not talk about any kind of investigation of any instrumentation. I mean, we don't know if this pilot had a, uh, a, a problem with primary instruments, that is attitude reference instruments. Did he have a processing gyro? Did he have electronic equipment in there that was starting to fail like an AHARS that was giving him a false turn thinking that he was actually straight and level because they made a 45 degree heading change right after takeoff. That is extremely unusual. And of course, none of the instrumentation was examined by the NTSB. And I know that the wreckage you know, was shredded and, and there was a lot of fire damage, but they don't even address the possibility. You got to answer the question, why did that pilot turn left? If he knew what was left, since that's his home airport, why would he turn that direction? Why couldn't he climb? Why didn't he climb greater than 50 to 100 feet? The NTSB in their, in their uh, probable cause statement made a a statement that says, well, he failed to attain a, an altitude for obstacle clearance. He couldn't see it. It was zero, zero that he blasted off into. So visually he wouldn't be able to see it. And again, they, they say he should have attained an altitude higher than the obstructions, but they don't answer the question why he didn't. And then one of the last things of course is for any pilot, you take off into the soup like that. Yes, part 91 says you can take off in zero, zero conditions. Is it wise? No. Why? Because if you have a problem and you need to come back to the airport, this pilot couldn't come back to this airport because the airport was below minimums. He couldn't shoot a 
approach in there. He couldn't maintain VFR. So there's no way he would have been able to come back here. Now, the other thing is, how close is the next suitable airport? Whether it's VFR or high enough for an IFR approach, we don't know that. Nobody ever explored that. And so there are a lot of issues that still have open, um, you know, open uh, questions that haven't been answered. And, and it's just one of those things where why do you just go to the obvious red button and go, well, the pilot failed to do this and the pilot failed to do that. Yeah, but you haven't provided any evidence as to what else you looked at and what the possibilities were. And of course, I think phraseology, since in aviation, we're always very critical of particular phraseology, why that wasn't examined. Even if it had, quote, nothing to do with the accident, it is a reiteration that proper phraseology proper terminology should be used. You don't just say, well, I can't give you a clearance, but good luck. Take off. Have a good one. See ya. That, that's just, that's ridiculous. So, I mean, I, those are my impressions. I don't know what you all got out of it, but, uh, you know, again, this is not a beneficial uh, report to educate pilots or anybody else who would be using this to, to really understand what the cause and contributing factors were in this particular accident. It's a statement of fact, and they did collect some facts, but they didn't collect all the facts. There are two things that uh, stick with me here looking at the report. One, going into the background of the pilot. Now, this event happened in the Silicon Valley area, very heavily covered by local media. Uh, there were over the months after the event, several stories written about it, including uh, interviews with someone who was a personal friend and his very first student after the accident pilot became a CFI. And it stands the reason that, gosh, they should say something about the pilot. Was this person incompetent? Was this person, was there something wrong with his background? And by the way, the local stories painted a very, very good picture of this person. He had thousands of hours of experience, did volunteer work in various places, was a, a very dedicated uh, pilot and instructor. And it's just mystifying why he did, but he did. And the second thing is, in this particular event, the aircraft took off, made a sharp left turn, hit the uh, power line system and, and crashed. Well, what if this person had turned right instead of left? It begs the question, why would anyone in that kind of airplane, that kind of visibility condition be at 200 knots, 15 seconds after crossing the runway threshold, 60 feet off the deck? It just uh, mystifies me that that was not investigated to some greater degree. Well, it seemed like they, like Greg said, they hit the easy button. They went and did a tremendous amount of work on the engine, tearing the engine down, looking for an engine problem, and which none existed. But that's when the work stopped. They didn't, they didn't go past that. All right, so we know now that the engine wasn't a factor in uh, the performance of this airplane. But something else was, you know, it just uh, it defies description why it, why it stopped so abruptly. Yeah, and the concern, of course, is, you know, uh, you're taking off into weather conditions like that, which, again, was not a wise decision. But the, kid, the, the, the uh, real question is, what prompted him to believe he could take off into those conditions? Was he, was there a lot of self-induced pressure? Did they have to leave right that moment? Were they late for a meeting? Were they trying to get somewhere that required them to have taken off right then and there? Because again, prudent decision-making, 
prudent flying of uh, operational discipline says, or at least suggests that, hey, you know what? The, I mean, that pilot, there's no way he could have known what was at the end of that runway with a 16th of a mile visibility. He doesn't know if there's a vehicle. He doesn't know if there's another aircraft on the end of that runway. He's blasting off into the abyss. He rotates and then he never climbs. You got to have an answer for that. At least look at the instrumentation and try and develop it, uh, you know, some sort of explanation. Because again, if the airplane had the old steam engine uh, type gauges in it, then you got to look at artificial horizons that may have a problem with the gyro and have processed. And the pilot has a false positive when it comes to believing that the, he's got wings level when in fact that airplane is turning left. There are other instruments in there that should have cued the pilot, but if he's focused on one, um, you know, he's, he could miss that. If it was electronic, then you have to start looking at an AHARS failure or something else that drives all of those electronic displays. There's no discussion about that. And, and again, you know, you have to at least look, you have to at least determine whether or not there is this potential to just say, well, you know, <laughs> He turned left and uh, he had a power line. So what? You don't even have to leave the office to figure that out. That does not benefit aviation. That sure as hell does not meet the mission of the board for determining the causes and contributing factors. And when you look at the actual coded part of the problem cause, not the uh, written narrative, the coded part is different than what they've written. And and again, you're talking about inconsistencies. You're talking about a lack of work. These people are investigators, or at least supposed to be. You have to develop all the facts, conditions, and circumstances, and you should at least come up with a reliable answer or, you know, based on the preponderance of evidence that the board would collect, you can come up with a pretty good storyline. Do it all the time at the NTSB. And that's why they call it probable cause. It's based on the best available facts, conditions, and circumstances. It may not be absolute, but at the time that those uh, facts, conditions, circumstances were developed, that is the best logical, reasonable conclusion. This report and that probable cause is worthless. The, uh, the data that comes out of this report and other reports like it, going to things like the Null Report and so many other places. And Todd and I have been talking about data and we're going to, we're actually going to do a program about data. But skewed data, you know, there's all sorts of one-liners like garbage in, garbage out and, and so on. It's a whole bunch of those one-liners. But the truth of the matter is that if you don't have accurate data to make decisions on, your decisions are going to be inadequate and sometimes out and out wrong. And I've been hopping, as you guys know, and many others know, I've been hopping in a while for, for the data because we're spending millions of dollars based upon uh, things like the Null Report. Uh, the FAA spends a lot of their resources trying to fix problems that are identified in these NTSB accident reports and, and, uh, and aggregated data. And if that data is wrong, this money is being spent in the wrong direction. It's being spent yeah. to fix a problem that doesn't exist. And, I, you know, I wish Bruce Landsberg would get, you know, he's the guy who was a data guru for AOPA, and he's sitting on the board. I wish he would put his uh, talents to work 
and take a look at the data and, and where it may be skewed and how we, you know, we're looking from the outside. We don't get the full picture sometimes, but he's on the inside and he should be able to get answers that we, they would never give to us. And, well, look, I mean, hey, I'll volunteer us to go sit down with them and we'll show them a hundred accidents where they failed to get all the facts, conditions, circumstances. And in fact, I was just reading an article in a uh, aviation litigation um, article. It said that um, through litigation, litigators have found that the probable causes by the NTSB pretty much 50% of the time are incorrect, inaccurate, or just flat ass wrong. Are, <laughs> the NTSB probable cause statements are either, you know, are 50% either wrong, inaccurate, or just uh, incorrect. 50%. And a lot of it is because of what we're talking about today. They did not develop all the facts, conditions, and circumstances. They did not do what is uh, really required of an investigator to do a thorough and methodical investigation. And this is another issue, which is a general issue, not with aviation, but with technological society at large. We're in an era where uh, artificial intelligence, big data, is something that's a real thing. It's not theoretical anymore. It's being used on a daily basis by all sorts of businesses and all sorts of industries. This is one industry that could benefit from that. The traditional yeah. sources of data the NTSB uses are great sources of data, uh, air traffic control tapes, uh, cockpit voice recorder, et cetera. But there are whole levels of things that could be brought to bear that were not in existence a decade ago. And this accident illustrates one of them. Who would have yeah. thought when they had this gunshot system that it could possibly use in an aircraft accident investigation? But that's exactly what happened. Move yeah, forward and, now. You had anything happen. Doorbell cameras, dash cams, you name it, all over the place. And, and that information was, was readily known. So the question is, why did they spend the time and the effort to go tear down engines when they really didn't need to if they had sound spectrum that says, hey, everything was good to go? So, I mean, it is little things like that. And, and again, I think it's a disservice to not only the, the pilot uh, relatives, friends and family um, of all of the victims in this accident, but it really is a disservice in aviation because we're not learning anything from this accident. Um, just the little things we talked about. It's good technique, it's good practice, it's prudent piloting that you don't take off in zero, zero because you got to think about if you have a problem and you need to come back, you're not coming back to that airport. And that goes with even taking off in uh, night conditions where you're flying off into the black abyss. If there's a black hole around the airport, you got a problem um, or you're taking off um, uh, under you know very questionable circumstances, you always have to think about the return. If something happens, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? And, and that just falls in line with what John's always preaching at the end of the show, and that is pre-flight planning and preparation, being prepared. You have to think ahead of the airplane. You always have to have plan B, and in some cases, even plan C. So again, what was the rush? Why did they have to go? Why would a pilot put himself or herself in a position like that where you're taking off into basically zero, zero, as you were talking about the takeoff and pre-planning, I remember back a lot of years ago and when I was still flying and being in West Virginia 
on a mountain when the, the cloud ceiling was below the top of the mountain. And we knew that you, the valley was open and we knew that we could get above it, but we ended up sp spending a day and a half on that mountain that we really didn't need to spend there, uh, couldn't afford to spend there uh, hmm. because we wouldn't take off in those conditions. Yeah. I mean, it's, you got to plan ahead. Like you said, yeah. if you take off and it isn't what you think it is, and uh, you're in a world of stuff immediately. Yeah. Well, I think that, you know, looking at this accident, like we do with all the others, um, we just try to point out lessons learned. We try to, again, look for answers that, uh, you know, <laughs> to questions that really haven't been asked. And, and we can only do so much, but that's not our job. It's really the job of the NTSB and or the FAA, depending on who's doing the investigation, to get those answers. This report and this investigation don't approve anything. All they do is fill a square and get a report off someone's desk. So anyway, gentlemen, uh, I know that uh, we have now talked about this and we're going to be looking at some other accidents and uh, in uh, the next several shows, we're going to be dissecting a variety of different accidents for very specific elements, which again, these are the kinds of things that we want to, we want to get answers to. And, um, and, and it, again, you know, it's all about what will benefit aviation safety. We have to learn from these tragedies. We have to use these accidents as lessons learned so that we can improve safety. We can improve pilot operations. We can improve, and, and, uh, improve any kind of maintenance uh, type elements if there is a mechanical uh, malfunction or failure, uh, air traffic control, anything dealing with aviation and the operation of an aircraft in the national airspace system. There is always something to be learned. And, uh, and I hope that, you know, with, uh, with us just constantly talking about these kinds of things, that our audience gets something out of it. Um, you know, pre-flight planning, uh, planning and preparation, that's a very generic term. But in this particular instance, it's very specific, given the fact that this pilot, you know, you got to think about your plan B. Where are you going to go? How close is your alternate if you have, if you've lost the engine? If this was a single engine airplane, where was that pilot going to put the airplane down in IMC conditions? He's not going to be able to see the ground until he's almost at the ground. You better have a plan if you are going to take off in those conditions. The prudent thing is you don't take off in those conditions. So um, well, there's, a good, there's, a good, there's a good example of having two engines where he may have assumed that even if I had an engine failure, I'm, I'm light and I can climb on one. You yeah. know, and willing to take the risk of an engine failure. Yeah. But that doesn't help if you have an instrument failure. That's right. And so those are the kinds of things that, uh, you know, we're always looking, you know, as a challenge. And, and those challenges um, need to be met. And they need to be met with uh, at least, you know, logical, reasonable answers to questions that need to be asked. You have to ask why until you can't ask why anymore. That is really the simplistic basis of being an accident investigator is asking why questions until you run out of why questions to, uh, to ask. So with that, Todd, I will leave you with the second to the last word. Well, uh, this is unusual in that I'm actually gonna say something directly related to this investigation in that 
one of the things we've talked about were the gunshot cameras, which were around there. And there were four uh, audio recordings that the NTSB actually used. From one of the uh, media sites, I got a short clip of two of those. And I'm going to have you folks listen to them and give me your, your feedback on it, because I think one of them illustrates how you can use this sort of information for the actual investigation. And the other gives you an idea of what sort of impact this may have on the people who are involved in this. Obviously, the folks who were involved who were killed was a tragedy for the families and such, but there was an entire community that was affected in many ways by this. Todd, I know you had some comments to make about uh, those gun cameras or microphones that they've had. You know, many big cities have them today, and they are a useful tool for, for investigations when they're available to you. Uh, but what were your thoughts on that subject? Well, I think that this, uh, this gunshot camera system had ancillary uses that were unexpected, but fortunately was a positive one to help the investigation. One of the side uh, issues that came up is it records other things. And as you heard in that clip, having the sound of the people in the neighborhood screaming as they hear this plane crashing around them. Luckily, no one on the ground was hurt or killed. But I can't help but think that these folks, some of them, might be uh, psychologically affected by this. And there is no structure in place uh, when it comes to the NTSB investigation or even at the federal level to deal with the psychological effects that accidents might have, not just on the people who are victims within the aircraft or their immediate families, but communities at large. And this is just an example of what may happen anytime you have a crash in a populated area. Uh, it's a shocking thing. It's something that will have an immediate effect. It may have long lasting effects. And I don't have any answers for it. I'm just wanting to point out that there's more to aviation safety than what we do, investigating accidents. There are other issues, some of which the society at large has addressed, others that they have. We've learned that with the Family Assistance Act and the way that the federal government, the NPSB and others deal with the families after a major traumatic event like an airliner crash. And I've been up to my eyeballs in those areas for a number of years. Uh, and it's it's painful area, but we haven't addressed that at the uh, at the general aviation level yet. So in closing, I would like to do my standard spiel. Again, this accident, pre-planning the flight is definitely a factor involved in this this uh, event. We don't know what he did, but certainly going to the left was not the thing to do. So we don't know if he did pre-plan that or, or what. There's some answers to questions that we'll never know, and that's one of them. But for all of us out there that are still flying, if you're going to go flying, please do a very thorough pre-plan uh, activity. Do it from home before you leave or the, or the hotel. Do it at the airport. Redo it at the airport. 
Remember, engine failure on takeoff, where are you gonna put it? Making the return, the, the impossible turn to come back to the airport is not a smart decision. You need to look around what's at the end of the airport and figure out where you can put this airplane down if you have a bad problem like that. And when you get out to your airplane, do a thorough pre-flight. And I mean a thorough one. If you're unsure, get a hold of a mechanic that works on the airplane, that type of airplane, and have them walk you through what a good pre-flight is. There's also some good pre-flights on YouTube. You can check those out. And after you get flying, put that head on a swivel because we have seen recently uh, mid-air collisions right around the airport had one with a student pilot, which it wasn't his fault, it looks like. But, you know, there's a lot more activity around airports today with everybody wanting to get in to fly airplanes, though, including Todd. So put your head on the swivel to make sure that you're clear, you're in clear airspace. And you can't just rely upon the radio and people transmitting. And above all else, please fly safely. To listen or watch more episodes of this show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com, the Flight Safety Detectives YouTube channel, or your favorite place to listen to podcasts. To contact John and Greg about the show, send them an email at FlightSafetyDetectives at gmail.com. And remember, for aviation insurance needs, contact Avemco Insurance at Avemco.com or give them a call at 888 888- 879-0389. Mention Flight Safety Detectives and receive a 5% discount. Thanks for listening to the Flight Safety Detectives and remember to always fly safe.